Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. This is our Braveheart teaching series, Courage in a World of Compromise. We're going to look at the downside of success this morning. And uh, before we turn to the text, unpack these notes, I'm going to invite our uh, executive pastor, Scott, to come on up here because we'd like to talk just a few minutes at the front end of this message on uh, what God's been doing here at Desert Breeze. As you guys remember, how many remember our Dare You to Move 2.5 campaign? Yeah, we kicked that off this year. And uh, when we moved in here, you guys remember this, and many of you know the story. This was a phenomenal buy when we purchased this building. It was truly uh, God gave this to us. We were elated and so uh, and excited about that. And so when we found this building, we were excited about it. And as we purchased it, and uh, since we've been here, we've had about a 40% growth. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's just amazing. And so we started thinking immediately, how can we utilize all 37,000 square feet of this facility? And uh, so we thought, well, let's do a campaign. We need to raise more money so that we can build out the rest of this. So we kicked off this campaign called Dare You to Move 2.5, and there were two things we were wanting uh, to do. We were wanting everybody in our church family to take steps of faith to full devotion to Christ. You guys remember the 5G process, and genuine growing, giving, going, all for God's glory. And we certainly have seen that unbelievably here. But we also wanted many to make a commitment uh, financially over the next three years so that we could raise the money so we could build this out. And there was about 312 families that said, yes, we will do that. And that's phenomenal. That's, that's really amazing. And uh, so we started thinking, okay, are we going to start building this out at the end of the year? And we talked about that. But uh, since we have discussed this with our board of elders, we came up with even a better plan because we want to be good stewards of what God has given us. We don't want to go into debt. And Scott's going to talk us a little bit about our, our next steps. Okay. So let me put things into perspective for you. Ray said that we uh, endeavored in this phase of the campaign to raise one point. $5 million, those 312 commitments have brought in um, uh, about $320,000 in commitments over three years. And uh, because the church has been able to save some money on expenses, the church as a business has contributed another 250,000 towards the Dairy to Move 2.5 campaign. And we're so thankful for uh, you 312 people and for everybody really that uh, have, have stepped up and done that. Uh, but that still means we're about a third of the way uh, to our $1.5 million goal. And, uh, but does that mean that the campaign has failed? Absolutely not. Because the campaign is not about the numbers. It's about us, the church. Not this church building, the church. You, the church, growing and becoming uh, more fully devoted followers of Christ. Our general giving has gone up. That's a product of God's grace and him working in us and becoming fully devoted followers. Uh, our leaders have never been more numerous and healthy. Our children's ministry has gotten better. Our youth ministry has gotten better. Um, our life groups have gotten better. So overall, this church has just grown immensely. And that's a product of us focusing on what's most important, not the numbers, but daring to move in different ways in our relationships. And so... Uh, right with God. So, way to go, Desert Breeze. Thank you so much for uh, all of you that do what you do here. Yes. <clears throat> Good stuff. So, um, and you know, we've been around since 1991, and the purchase of this building was the first loan we've ever gotten. 
And that's uh, only a product of God's grace. But when we did get a loan, we considered it to be tool debt. Many of you have mortgages on your house, that's tool debt. It's responsible to buy a home, but to buy a home that you can afford. Um, God also blessed us with paying tenants here at Desert Breeze, and we love their lease payments. Woohoo! They help yes, us. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> they help us pay our mortgage. The space that we have to use for church meets our needs. Yes, we're growing at a rate that's exciting, but no, we're not, we're not without seats yet. We know it's going that direction, so what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go in between? Well, um, Luke chapter 14 encourages you is that, is that uh, no one goes to build a tower and doesn't first sit down and count the cost, so what? So he can finish it, right? And so because God's given us these tenants, it would be absolutely foolish for us if we're endeavoring to raise money over three years, not to continue to have our tenants be where they are because truth be told, and it's not a discouragement, is that we didn't get the commitments that we thought. And that's okay, uh, it's, it's God's plan. And we're following his plan, not our own. And so I've heard a lot of churches in the past say, well, you know, you just gotta, or businesses or even families, we're just trusting God and so we're gonna take out a loan. Absolutely not. We can trust God and be responsible at the same time. Yeah. Okay? So we're extending our uh, tenants' leases, and they've all accepted. We're extending their leases two years, and that two years will end when the three-year commitments end. So it just makes sense. It doesn't make sense to say, no thanks, we don't want those lease payments. We're just going to have that space sit empty. Um, that's ridiculous. And so we're trying to be good stewards. We're trying to be responsible. We're trying to follow God's guidance and not our own thoughts and plans. Uh, and it's going to work out. And I'm actually glad it's working out that way because we get to demonstrate that we're walking our talk and we're being a good example as church leaders and as a church family to do what you're supposed to do, to know that it all comes from God, to uh, trust in his goodness, but to be wise as serpents, right? And so that's what we're doing. You're going to notice a few things um, uh, between now and then, we, we do have one empty suite, and if you walked by suite 107, you might have noticed that there's some improvements going on in there. We know eventually that we're gonna need more seats for our overflow, uh, and so we're gonna improve that suite um, to be like a cafe area. It's not gonna have a coffee shop, but we'll be able to serve some refreshments in there uh, for overflow, and people can watch the services in there. It's gonna be a really nice area, um, and we're not creating a demand um, that we're just gonna take away because when we can't afford it, uh, hopefully at the end of this three years, um, whatever overflow that accommodates over there, this sanctuary is just gonna get bigger so the people will just move over here. So I think that's a good plan too. Uh, the other thing is the, the other half of that suite, the back side, the west side of it, um, that's the only part of our master plan that we can move forward with uh, to accommodate another growing need that we have and that's our youth ministry. If you go back there, there's like 85 kids in this, in this room and they worship God. There's great things going on back there, but they're, they're tapped out as far as seats. They're much fuller than they, we are in here. And so we're gonna be able to do that. We've got some designs to finish, some permits to get, and some plans to get approved and things like that. So that's not gonna happen immediately, but uh, definitely between now and the next couple of years, uh, we'll be getting that done and uh, hopefully the sooner the better. And so, we're doing what we can. We're doing what's responsible. We're doing what I think God would have us do because we want to honor, honor and glorify him because he's doing amazing things here in your hearts. Right on. And, uh, to, get, to bring him glory. So hey, that's couple, what we're doing. One, one quick question. Uh, how much does that, the lease payments bring in? 
Um, we make um, around $200,000 a year profit. Uh, That's good stuff. I mean, for being landlords. I like that. We're not in the business of being. Yeah. We're not in the business of being that's, landlords, but we don't smart. mind right now. Yeah, that's smart. And how can they find out a little bit more? If they want to get involved with the Dare You to Move 2.5, what can they do? They can go on our website. If you look on our website, there's a scrolling banner that has different images on it, and one says two point, Dare You to Move 2.5. Just click on that. That'll bring to you a page. Uh, you can watch videos on there, some testimonies of what's going on here at Desert Breeze. You can also find out detailed information like I've given today about what goes on. And if those, that page doesn't answer those questions for you, Scott at dbcc.com is my email address. You'd be more than welcome to email me, and I'll do my best to answer your questions for you. Okay? Thanks, Scott. Let's give him a hand. All right. Good job. I'm excited about what God's doing here. We've got a great study here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges chapter 8. We've got a chunk to cover. Chapter 8, starting at verse 1, we're going to go all the way to chapter 10, verse 5. We will not be reading all of it. We'll do a hop, skip, and jump through it. We'll be reading sections of it. I'll give you a brief scenario of a lot of it. A number of years ago, um, I, it, was a, it was a hot day like it is today out there, and I went over to my mom and dad's house, and as I came in, my mom looked at me and thought I could use a drink. I go, yeah, I could use a drink. Uh, give me a drink of water. I'm, I'm pretty hot and exhausted. And, uh, and she goes, hey, how about, uh, wouldn't you like to have some orange juice? So she kind of dug through her refrigerator and pulled out some orange juice. You know, take this orange juice. This orange juice, you really like this orange juice. And my mom, if you know my mom, she always tries to get you to take more than what you've actually asked for. She's very much a servant, really loves, loves people. And I said, okay, mom, if you insist, I'll, I'll, I'll drink the orange juice. So she poured me this big old glass of orange juice. And when you're real hot, I don't know if you guys do this, but do you ever guzzle? Just kind of start drinking it down? I was about halfway down, only to find out that the orange juice was rancid. I wanted to throw up. Mom, how long have you had this orange juice in your refrigerator? Oh, about 10 years. No, that's not how long. And, then, and my mom did laugh. She thought that was funny. I didn't think it was very funny. I wanted to throw up. And, and maybe you've had that experience. Anybody here ever have that experience when something good has gone bad? And you don't realize it until about after you've drank half of it? Or maybe you've had this experience where you have your child's, your kid's sippy cup left in the back seat of the car in this summer heat. You're afraid to even open it up to find out what's inside. So you just throw it away, start over. Huh? You get a new one. So, so how do good things go bad? How do good things go bad? You guys remember the judges' cycle. The Israelites are on a crazy cycle. That's the cycle we want to stay off of. It starts with complacency, complacency in their relationship with God. Complacency in your relationship with God will inevitably lead to compromise. And then compromise will inevitably lead to crisis. It'll lead to crisis, and then what we see in the same pattern over and over again, the Israelites cry out to God, God sends a judge, a rescuer, and in this particular episode, what we've been looking at, this is our third week with Gideon. Gideon is the judge, and you can see there on your notes, Gideon goes from cowardly, Judges 6, to courageous, Judges 7, to what? Cocky, Judges 8. Gideon is a good leader who, who goes bad. He goes rancid. And um, he never becomes an evil man per se. He just spoils and ruins his ministry and his kids in the process, leading the Israelites astray. I mean, he started off kind of shaky, goes big, and then goes bad. 
I got an, uh, a text message late last Sunday night uh, from Darren, and he sent me a link to an article about a pastor who had just fallen morally uh, from a big megachurch, now one of four in the Florida area. How do good go bad? That's the big question we're looking at. Two to, uh, the way we're going to answer that is, how do I know success has gone to my head? That's the first question we're going to look at. Second question is, what is the remedy? What is the remedy? That's where we're headed before we look at this text and unpack these notes. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love you. And we love you because you have an extravagant, amazing, overwhelming, captivating love for us. We pray that through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would recalibrate our consciences by your holiness, that you would feed our minds with your truth, captivate our imaginations by your beauty, lavish our hearts with your love so that we can devote our will more fully to your purposes for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Now, we left Gideon last week on a high. He had just pulled off the most incredible upset in military history with only how many soldiers? How many? 300. So he takes on a Midianite army of well over 100,000 with 300 and without a single casualty. And anytime you have success... You can expect criticism and contempt, and that's exactly what he faces in Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. But the thing that's more troubling about this is how he responds to this criticism and contempt. Let me begin reading chapter 8, verse 1. Then the, the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? He's talking to, they're talking to Gideon, not to call us when we went to fight against when you went to fight against Midian, and they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian and Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? It sounds like he's doing a little bit of placating and patronizing, really. And you're going to see that that truly is what he's doing because his, he's going to have, he's going to come in contact with two different, two other groups. He's going to respond totally differently. And so, then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now, verse 4, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, and, he had, and the 300 men who were with him were exhausted yet pursuing. Who are they pursuing? I thought they wiped out the enemy. Well, the, the two kings of the Midianites have fled, and so they're going to run them down and kill them. And, uh, and so they're exhausted in their pursuit. Verse 5, so he said to the men of Succoth. That's an unfortunate name for a city, isn't it? <laughs> Where do you live, Succoth? I didn't ask you what you felt about where you lived. Succoth. I live in Succoth. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Now, Gideon's going to respond here in a way. How many have ever seen this before where you say something, you bring up someone's name, you bring up an event, and you have someone kind of like almost take your head off? 
they kind of overreact. You go, whoa, what did I just say? What is that all about? We call it around here at Desert Breeze the sunburn analogy. It's like your friend has a sunburn, they put their shirt on, you don't know it, you come up and pat them on the back, and they go, oh, and you go, what? I'm just trying to give you a love pat. Yeah, but that hurt. What, what hurts? I got a sunburn. I didn't know that. That's what we have with Gideon, this overreaction. By the way, anytime you find yourself in your own heart overreacting, we all tend to do it. There's a hurt. There's probably some bitterness going on there. It's any person's name or events in your life or anything that's going on. There's something that hasn't been healed yet. And, um, and so Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zelba, Zeba and Zelmuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Oh my goodness. That's pretty violent. I mean, he just lashes out at them. And this is quite different from how he responded with that first group. The first group, he's kind of patronizing and placating. And he just kind of goes off on them. And from there, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. So he's asking, hey, could you feed my guys? And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. He's angry. And actually what you're going to see is he does more to break down the tower. He kills all the men in that city. It's like, what in the world? What's going on here, Gideon? You got a little bit of a bitter root going on. What happened to that? God is with you, oh mighty man of valor. This is like way different from that. Now, now, let me kind of highlight, give you a summary of the rest of this. By the way, let me just say something about the gospel and how the gospel helps us. The gospel frees you to love people who hate you without needing love from them in return. There's just something wonderful about the gospel. Why is that? Because all the love you need, you have in Christ. And so that you can actually, you don't have to overreact. You don't have to respond with negativity. You don't have to be hateful in your response to people because you're operating out of, out of emotional wealth because of his amazing love for you. That's how, the lo that's how the gospel works. So you can see that there's something going on with Gideon here. And there's something going on in our own heart when we overreact like that. And then, so as you continue on with the story, let me give you a summary. You've got it there on your notes. Verses 10 through 12, 18 through 21, Gideon captures and kills the two Midianite leaders. In verses 17, uh, 13 through 17, the cities of Succoth and Penuel are severely punished for refusing to help Gideon's uh, troops. And he goes back and he tortures the, the men of Succoth and then he kills, he tears down the, the tower and kills the men of Penuel. And then in verses 22 through 23, the grateful Israelites ask Gideon to be their king, but he refuses. Let me read that text. Keep your Bibles open. So when the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Good answer. But here's the, here's the problem. He answers well, but yet his actions are going to speak louder than his words. He's actually going to do something opposite of this. He's going to actually let them treat him like he's the king. And he's almost going to set himself up as the king. Let God be your king. Oh, but then, so what he says and what he does are the opposite. They, they contradict uh, each other. And then in verses 24 through 27, 
And then in verses 33 through 35, Gideon asks for gold. This is how he, he wants them to set him up as king. He asks for the gold from the spoil and makes an ephod. What is that? It's a special garment for priests. Why would he do that? Well, he's kind of setting himself up as, as the priest. And the place of worship isn't supposed to be there in his town, but he's going to actually set his place, his home as a kind of a place of worship, almost competitively to the real place of worship in the, in the center of their spirituality. And so you see something's going on in the heart of Gideon. So Gideon asks for, for gold from the spoil, makes an ephod that becomes an idol for Gideon and the rest of the Israelites. Verses 28 through 32, the land is at peace for 40, for 40 years, the rest of Gideon's life. Gideon has many wives, he has one concubine, and fathers many children, which also shows kind of the lifestyle of a king. Totally contrary to what the Bible teaches, what he's doing and how he's behaving. So here's the question. How do I know success has gone to my head? Here's the first thing. Number one, I am working for my identity rather than from my identity. In other words, you're going to live your life either... uh, for your identity or from your identity. Identity speaks of uh, what's most important to us. It really answers kind of the the basic questions of life. Why do I exist? Why do I draw air into my lungs? What am I living for? Everybody's living for something. And you're either going to live for yourself or you're going to live for God. You're going to live for your glory, which would be in pursuit of your identity through something in creation, or you're going to live from your identity, what God says about you, and then out of that abundance, live for his glory. And so you get this idea that he's actually, he has forgotten Judges 6.12. Remember, where did we find Gideon? Originally, he was in, he was cowering in a wine press, threshing wheat, and the angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany, comes to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. What is he saying? That's your identity. This is who you are. Now operate out of this identity. But somehow, he's not operating out of that identity anymore. He's working for it and... Um, And inevitably, when anything in creation becomes your identity over and above the creator, in other words, you're working working for your glory rather than for God's glory, success will inflate you, it will go to your head, and failure will deflate you, it will go to your heart. Why do you think people are so devastated when they lose a ton of money? or their marriage breaks up, or they lose a loved one through death, or any number of things. It's because probably, the reason why they're so devastated is because they've overly attached their their identity, their security, their significance to to that. So So it makes a major difference in our life. So the gospel frees us from the relentless pressure of having to prove ourselves because we are already proven and secure in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So, so, we, so it goes back to Genesis chapter three. We were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, look into the eyes of the one who, who created us and adores us, and to hear those words from his mouth saying, um, I am with you. I am with you, oh 
mighty woman or man of valor. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. And then in that, fill our hearts up with all of the, the acceptance, security, significance we'll ever need and then go out in life and be able to respond appropriately. So you can see, but what happened is that we rejected God, that, that spiritual alienation created immediately, immediately psychological alienation this deficit, this emptiness, and what do we do? We, instead of going back to God, we typically, when we find ourselves overreacting in life, we, t- we, we go to something in creation to satisfy rather than go back to the creator and say, wait a minute, there's something broken inside of me. There's some kind of hurt. I need to go back to the healer and let him heal me and let him set me right and make things right and to fill up and be reestablished in my identity in him. And that's what That's what we need to do. But I am working for my identity rather than from my identity. That's when success has gone to my head. My life is more about stuff, more about achievements, accomplishments, the accolades, than it is about what God says about me. And it creates major problems. And here's the next thing. Number two, my prayer, Bible study, and consulting with other Christians is sporadic. This is how I know that success has gone to my head. Back in Judges 7, 15, when Gideon knew his own weakness and understood that victory could only be by grace, he worshiped and honored God. But that, that's the last time we see him doing that. There is no way... There's no way you will be able to grow spiritually apart from deep involvement in God's word, prayer, and community with other believers. There's no way you can do that. So independent people, proudful people, that's why proudful people or independent people don't read their Bible, they don't pray, they don't connect with other Christians. Why? They don't think they need that. And little do they know, they're desperate for that. But pride keeps them from seeing their desperation. We talked about that last week. And uh, so that's just a sign when you begin to be sporadic in your prayer, Bible study, and consulting with other Christians, that's a sign that uh, you're, you've got pride going on. Success has gone to your head. Here's number three. I tend to either cower or tower around certain people. And so you see this. This is quite interesting. Um, uh, this inferiority, there's this attitude that he has towards Ephraim, this group. And uh, he, he almost kind of, really kind of, uh, in fact, they're much stronger than they, they were. He comes from a re- very weak tribe. And so he, uh, he's very inferior, tends to placate and patronize th- them in verses one through four. But then he towers over this other group from Succoth and Penuel in verses five through nine. And what I, I put that down, so I tend to either cower or tower around certain people, typically people in the area that I most esteem or value. So, so think about this. So if I'm, if I'm not completely getting my identity from Christ, I'm going to get it from something in creation. So it'll either be in my marriage or parenting, how my kids turn out, money, body image, my business, whatever it is. And my natural inclination is to compare myself with others. And I'm going to feel a bit envious of those who have better whatever it is, if it's body image or money. I'm going to envy those because that's what I want and that's what I'm telling myself that I can't live without and that's my sense of meaning and purpose in life. So I'm going to envy those folks, but then I'm going to feel quite smug around those folks that have less than me. And this is where, once again, the gospel remedies this by telling us that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us, so that eliminates superiority. How could we ever feel superior to anybody? Jesus had to rescue us. We needed to be rescued, so that eliminates any kind of superiority. So, 
So, but it also eliminates any inferiority. How could we ever feel inferior to anybody because he loved us so much, he wanted to rescue us. So it really creates this blessed self-forgetfulness. So you can hang out with, you know, you can hang out with wealthy people or poor people. You're not gonna treat them any differently because you just, you love God and you understand how that kind of balances the playing field. Makes all the difference in the world and in, in how we respond to the issues of life. Number four, I become terribly bitter and revengeful toward anyone who stands in the way of my success. How many of you have ever seen this before where there's, there's certain people that you kind of hang out with and you don't like to hang out with them because they're just kind of generally angry? Anybody know someone like that? Don't point them out in here right now. Okay. So they're kind of generally angry. And then there are others that they're not generally angry, but every once in a while you say the right thing, they're going to go off on you. You know, they're just going to be grouchy or from time to time they have those times in their life when they're just grouchy and so you feel like you're kind of walking around on eggshells a little bit. You know, people have asked me from time to time if I wake up grouchy and I tell them, no, I let her sleep in until noon. <laughs> because I can't, yeah, and I can't hardly handle her if I don't let her do that. Actually, my wife, she's the most delightful person to be around. She's just so mellow and so low-key and she keeps me, I'm the one, she's got to walk around on eggshells with me at times, believe me. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the dude there sometimes where I'm revealing my bitterness and my, my revengeful attitude. I become terribly bitter and revengeful toward anyone who stands in the way of my success. Well, how dare you? And uh, kind, of, kind of interesting there. But it's, it's interesting, verses 13 through 17, he tortures the people of Succoth and then he kills the people of Penuel. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 talks about how we deal with our anger. Don't... Uh, don't let the sun go, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. And then it tells us in Hebrews 12, 15 about bitterness. Don't let a bitter root grow up in your heart, causing uh, trouble and defiling the people that you hang out with. That's what it says. My wife, <laughs> I was studying on Thursday morning. My wife came up to me and goes, hey, I just found out that there's a new donut shop on our side of the town. <laughs> I said, where is it? She said, it's over off of 7th, I think it was 7th Street in, um, in Union Hills. I go, excellent. Let's go. It says Boza or B-O-S-A. You guys familiar with it? Bossa? Is that how you pronounce it? Okay. So Bossa, Bossa Donuts. Oh, they're good. While we were hanging out there, though, is that she was reading from a book, and I was doing some more study, and she, she shared this with me, and I thought it really goes well with this. It says this, the evil in our desires often lies not in what we want, but that we want it too much. Our problem is that we want these desires satisfied more than we want to live for God's glory, causing us to become bitter toward anyone who stands in the way of us getting what we think we can't live without. So when I become angry and bitter, basically that's what I'm saying. I have to have that, and how dare you stand in the way of that? <laughs> Makes sense? Yeah, that's convicting. And... Uh, and hardship is, is defined differently for all of us. What's hardship for you might not be hardship for me. And it really comes down to what, our, what we value the most in life. So and oftentimes we overvalue things that we probably shouldn't value and that's why it becomes hardship. We, we inflict ourselves with that hardship because we make too much of things sometimes that are temporal. We need to let go. And not as much of things that are, are eternal and the things that will help to transcend the temporal. And, uh, and I really believe, we did a baby dedication in the first service with a couple who their child went through some horrendous ICU, 
was in ICU for a long time, and this young couple suffered well as their little child was born under two pounds, and I was able to dedicate that little baby. And if you don't believe in miracles, oh my goodness, you ought to hear the story of this, this family and this couple and this little child, Paisley Ray. You guys know who I'm talking about. Some of you know who that is, that little sweet girl. And I held her up here this morning through this baby dedication. I was just overwhelmed with the grace of God and understanding. And I, as I watched this couple suffer well, and as I watched the church family rally around them, and I really believe, I believe that Christians go through hardship so that we can put on display that Christ is more satisfying than all that hardship can ever take from our lives. And I, I really believe that. The people would look at us and go, man, how in the world do you do that? And I've looked at that couple many times and I know it was the grace of God working in their lives. I didn't see them become bitter. They were struggled, they struggled, they persevered, but it wasn't bitterness. They, they were able to deal with the bitterness. I mean, certainly you could have reason to, but they kept coming back to Christ in that. Number five, I desperately promote myself because I am glory hungry rather than satisfied in God living for his glory or living for God's glory. Verses 18 through 21, the Midianite kings had killed uh, uh, Gideon's brothers and their deaths or what have made him so determined to catch them, which is interesting when you kind of look at the underlying plot line is that Gideon's pursuit of the Midianite kings seems to be motivated less by a desire to complete the deliverance of God's people for God's glory rather than a drive for personal vengeance for the honor of his own family because it's interesting when he finally captures the kings, he wants to humiliate these kings by having his firstborn, a mere boy, kill them. But his young uh, son won't, so he has to step up and kill him. But you can see that, that vengeful, that revengeful attitude working, working in Gideon's heart. And so there's a tendency that when we're running on uh, this deficit, because we're not looking into, the, into God's word, into the face of Jesus regularly and receiving all of that acceptance, security, and significance that we desperately need, we're going to run with this deficit and we're going to try to promote ourselves. We're going to crave praise and we're going to be crushed by criticism. And then number six, I forget that my salvation, sanctification, strength in tough times and satisfaction in life are all by God's amazing grace. Verse 23, we see Gideon doing this uh, because Gideon says, the Lord will rule over you and yet he lets them treat him like a king. Gideon has a said faith rather than a real faith. And, and I understand when we're new believers, there's going to be this gap between what I believe and how I behave. But listen to me, the longer you walk with Christ, the more that should be narrowing. There should be a narrowing to that gap with what you believe and how you behave. And there's, a, there's this major disparity between, oh yeah, serve God, he's the king, oh, but you can go ahead and treat me as king. That's, that's what's going on here. It's pretty, pretty interesting story here. And Gideon has a set faith rather than a real faith. And in verses 34 through 35, the people of Israel really also show the same. After Gideon dies, they did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from their enemies on every side. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, the ultimate test of our spirituality, so of our maturity, of our growth, is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. So let me ask you this, how amazed are you at God's grace? See, the more you understand God's grace, this is, this is how I can tell how amazed you are by God's grace, is that you will experience on a more ongoing basis 
joy that is indescribable and indestructible to any people, thing, or circumstance. That's what God offers us. Pretty amazing. But if, but if I forget that salvation, sanctification, strength in tough times, and, and satisfaction in life are by God's amazing grace, I'm not going to have that indescribable, indestructible joy. And then number seven, I substitute myself for God rather than to be a faithful, humble pointer to God. And so, verse 27, Gideon made this ephod, which is really peculiar, which was worn by the high priest in the tabernacle, designated uh, uh, really the true place of God's dwelling. Gideon is essentially setting up himself as a priest and his home as a rival worship place. I don't know if, I've never seen this happen, but uh, I've done a lot of weddings and I love doing weddings and I love being at weddings and partly because they're just really... uh, Unbelievable when you, when the bride be- comes around the corner, begins to come down the aisle. Those, there's, there's moments that just are absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. And everybody stands up and looks down the aisle and there's tears that'll come, you know, down your eyes because you, you see and you get a picture of the bride of Christ. And then typically most people will go from the bride to the groom to see how is he responding what is that you look at his face to see maybe there might be a tear in his eye because if there is you'll know that this is going to be a great marriage if there's just maybe a little tear in his eye and so she comes down the aisle and then they can almost not even contain themselves and I've never seen this happen but imagine this that one of the groomsmen as she's coming down the aisle he starts making you know eyes and (laughs) starts going hey baby forget this dude how about me you know, starts, starts making eyes at the, at the bride and says, hey, you know, tries to draw attention of the bride from the groom over to the groomsman. What do you think the groom would do? He would punch him in the head is what he would do. And he should. If I was the pastor, I'd punch him for him. Dude, this isn't about you. Boom. Okay, get out of the way. But that's what Gideon is doing. And that's what leaders do when they're misguided and misdirected. This church isn't about me. My job is to point to Jesus. You're the bride, we're the bride, he's the groom. If you come to Desert Breeze and then leave and forget about me, you've lost nothing. If you come to Desert Breeze and leave and forget about Jesus, you have lost everything. My job is to point to him. For us, together, we fall in love with him. Our job as a church and as leaders, we want to point to him. We want people to know him. And Gideon lost that. I become a substitute myself for God rather than to be a faithful and humble pointer to God. And here's the next one, number eight. I, I live a lifestyle of materialistic excess and waste my valuable time. And that's exactly what Gideon does. He has opportunity to bring revival and renewal, and he doesn't. Verses 24 through 27, Gideon has the people give him gold from the spoil. He makes an ephod that it, with it, and the people, it actually says in verse 27, they whore after it. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Oh, it's devastating, the consequence. You're going to see something happen here that's just absolutely devastating. It didn't have to go that way, but it just shows you how good go bad, become rancid. Verses 29 through 31, Gideon acts more and more like a king with all of his many wives and children. You know, that she's just showing he's living a lifestyle as a king. And, and what's interesting, he has a son from his concubine and names him Abimelech. 
And the Hebrew name for Abimelech is, guess what? My dad is king. That's crazy. He names his son that. So he says in one, in, in one way, he says, oh, no, no, God's king. And yet at the other, in another way, in his actions, he says, no, I'm king. So evidence that success hasn't gone to your head is that you are radically generous with your time and money through your local church family. And let me just say, I don't say this enough, but man, we have a great, we have a great family here. This church would not exist and not be as strong and as effective as it is if it hadn't been for many of you who regularly give of your time and your money through Desert Breeze so that we can have a greater impact in the community. Thank you so much for what you do. Now, what's the point of all of this is that, it's that don't let God's blessing in your life make it all about you. Don't let the good things God has done in and through your life become rancid, spoil you. I mean, this has a terrible impact on his family and the Israelites. Let me just summarize the next chapter, Judges chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Gideon's son, so Gideon has passed away. Gideon's son from his concubine, Abimelech, becomes the self-appointed king after murdering all but one of his 70 half-brothers. Verses 7 through 15, Abimelech's only surviving half-brother, Jothan, denounces him through a parable calling him a bramble bush or a a tumbleweed, and then he rebukes those Israelites who follow him, which the Israelites should have known better. But those from Shechem, hey, they support him. They make him king. And that happens in verses 16 through 21. And then Jotham prophesies that God will bring judgment. In verses 22 through 56, chapter 9, Abimelech goes on the warpath to destroy those who don't support him Ending with his death, it's kind of interesting, he goes against, he's going to tear down this tower, he's going to light it on fire, and there's a woman that comes off over the top and drops a millstone on his head. And he's so embarrassed by this, he asks his armor bearer to come and kill him, because I don't want to be known as the one who's been killed by a woman. So it's pretty crazy, you can read the rest of it there. But what's fascinating is that between verses 8, chapter 8, verse 34, through chapter 10, verse 5, which is part of our text, God is not mentioned at all by his personal covenant name, the Lord, or Yahweh. And the narrator lifts the curtain of human affairs to show us a glimpse of what God is doing. What is God doing? Here it is, verses 23 and 24, chapter 9. Let me read it, 23 and 24. Let me start with verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, and his rulership is just horrendous. It's terrible. But this is what God eventually does. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, who initially embraced them, but he sends an evil spirit between them, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, so there's, there's great divisiveness between them, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Zerubbabel, that's Gideon, might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. That's bloodshed. It's ugly what happened as a result of, of Gideon not standing strong and true. Uh, let's finish the story, the last two verses of 
of Judges chapter 9, verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is Gideon. Okay, so here's how we end. What is the remedy of this? What's the point? Number one, God delays his judgment for, for repentance, but will never deny judgment. I mean, all hell breaks loose with this uh, nation of Israel. Um, because of Gideon going from being a coward to courageous to cocky, to becoming rancid, spoiling. And yet what God is showing us here is that his judgment may be slow, but it is sure as it meets out perfect justice fulfilling his purposes. You, you guys know this. In light of the direction our country is currently going, you guys know this. Ultimately, God's purposes will prevail. Do you know that? And, and when, you, when you study scripture, I mean, Job 42 two makes that very clear. And Jesus is still Lord, regardless of what it looks like out there. That's what this text is showing us. Jesus is still Lord. Oh, and by the way, I already know how the whole story is going to end in our lives and in history. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Philippians 2. And so don't get all stressed out. Don't get all freaked out. Jesus is still in control but we need to be faithful to him. In fact, it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance or reach repentance. So don't let the slowness of God's judgment lull you into complacency. See, here's the bottom line. Either Jesus dies for your sins or you will die for your sins. Does that, does that make sense? So it's, it's a matter of time. Judgment will come, but God delays judgment because he wants to bring repentance and he gives people opportunity to come to him. But eventually it will come and you, you just need to know that. And so here's the next point. Our greatest problem isn't out there, but in our hearts, our own hearts. This story is the first one in Judges where the actual oppression comes not from outside of Israel, but from within them. It is one of their own people, the son of one of their greatest leaders that is the oppressor. And so finally, I mean, it, it is made clear that foreign nations are not Israel's problem. They're their own problem. This has always been the case, but now we see it clearly. In fact, think about this. This is the first time, as we've read through the text, the first time that God doesn't turn them over to their enemies. Remember, as we've read through there, they did evil in the eyes of God, God would turn them over to the enemies. He doesn't do that this time. He just lets them face the consequences of their own sinful choices. Gideon's self-centeredness and glory lust, or lust for glory, produces a son who who murdered his brothers so he could be king. Israel, uh, Israel's disregard for God's commands and their self-interest lead uh, to them selecting an opportunistic man, Abimelech. Abimelech's treachery and backstabbing lead to his downfall. So here's the deal. God allows us to experience the consequences of our own sinful choices. Sin is its own curse. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. Now, let me get your attention here just for a minute. I just want to talk to you pastorally in light of this uh, Supreme Court's uh, recent ruling on same-sex marriage. Um, 
The Supreme Court's recent ruling on same-sex marriage is not only an undermining of our democratic system, you guys know that, but it represents our nation's blatant disregard and trampling of God's love and wisdom. See, anytime we live outside of what God has directed for us, as we can see with Gideon and, and, and his family and what happens as a result of that, we think that we're smarter and more loving than God. Now, the Bible's already established, if you didn't know this, the Bible's already established and has defined for us what marriage is. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. When God created man, he pretty much set it up and said, hey, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's written right there. And if you're kind of wondering, is that validated in the New Testament? Absolutely, by Jesus. Jesus validates that in Matthew 19, 5 through 6. Now, see, here's my rationale as I kind of work through this, and this is what I try to help people to understand. Because if you reject what God has established, his principles, his laws, it's probably because you really don't know him. You don't understand that in his love and in his wisdom, this is what he's established. He's trying to protect us from the worst and provide the very best for us. But when I go outside of what he's directed, basically, I'm saying, hey, I'm smarter than you, and I think I'm more loving than you. <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. And the consequences of sin is death. And my rationale in this is that if Jesus rose from the dead to validate that he truly is the Son of God and he embraces this and many other biblical principles and, and guidelines and guardrails and, and laws, then it would be foolish for me not to follow him. So it's really a much deeper issue. Oftentimes people will reject that because they don't really know Jesus. And so... By the way, you need to know this, that the first century church had it much worse than us. And yet, and yet they turned their world upside down, not through politics, but through the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. Now, in our response to this, don't be ugly. They're not our enemy. They're captives of our enemy. We want them to be set free because we have been set free and God is continuing to set us free. We're just wanting to give to them what we ourselves have, have experienced in our own lives. And so you speak the truth in love, but guess what? We should be so loving, we should be so loving that they will say to us, so, so melt in your mouth sweet that they will say to us, I don't agree with what you say, but I cannot deny that you love me. We should be known by our love, but we're not, quite frankly, and so we need to do a better job with that and really be, be loving, speak the truth in love. Scott told me that he had that experience happen to him with one of his friends who embraces uh, a same-sex marriage and all of that. He said, you know what, Scott, I don't agree with you, but man, I can't deny the fact that you love me. And I go, right on, Scott. That's our executive pastor. I go, that's awesome. That's a wonderful testimony. That's what we want for all of us as Christians. And so there's that balance in that. That's why we're doing this series. Courage in a world of compromise. Listen, it's happening all around us. But we can stand up for the truth. We can do it in a very loving fashion. That's what God has for us. And, uh, and enough, enough said there. By the way, you guys know this, that sin, sin is the suicidal exchange of the fountain of living water, Christ, for broken cisterns, Jeremiah 2.13. So that path that we see our country on is destructive. And history 
shows us that over and over again. Enough said. Let's continue on. The reason why I said that right here is because in Judge, Judges chapter 10 verses 1 through 5, there's something absolutely wonderful that happens even in the midst of all of this destruction and all this pain and suffering. In the rule of Abimelech, Israel falls to new depths. The people have completely abandoned God. They have opted to be led by a man who was chosen not by the Lord but by himself. Yet God sends them, Tola and Jair, to be judged saviors they're not asking for in Judges chapter 10 verses 1 through 5. And this is the sheer grace of God. These judges saved Israel from herself, from the failings and ambitions of their own wicked and evil hearts and from the divisions and strife among them. See, the church's greatest problem is not out there. It's, it's us. It's the church. We need to continue to be rescued. Our greatest problem is us. We do not want to go on the path of Gideon. Gideon from cowardly to courageous to cocky to become rancid. This is, this is how the good go bad. We don't want to go that direction. So therefore, we need number three. We need the true and better judge, the king Jesus, King Jesus, nothing satisfies more than living for his glory. Unlike Gideon, Jesus had every right to demand service as a king. Unlike Gideon, Jesus is the high priest, the tabernacle, God's ultimate dwelling place on earth. Yet Jesus resisted the temptation to rule in power over the nations, Luke 4, 5 through 8. Jesus because, and the reason why he did that, it was because he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, Jesus did not take our treasures to make a garment of gold for himself. He poured out his blood to clothe us in his righteousness. Listen, we serve a man who died for his enemies. He gave his life for us. Amazing. He became poor so that we might become rich. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, what an amazing message as we continue to work our way through the book of Judges, as we kind of sit on, our, on the edge of our seat as you lead us and guide us and speak to us, Lord, transform our lives. May we take seriously these warning signs for when success goes to our head, may we repent. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us uh, us from this downside of success, from misplacing our identity. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us freedom from craving praise and from being crushed by criticism. Because, Jesus, you lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. We have all of the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need to face anything in life for your glory and our indescribable and indestructible joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.